Today, we are going to unlock the mysteries of child support. We're going to talk about strategies that you need to know when you're negotiating child support, uh, strategies to avoid ending up in jail if you're the obligor for child support, and we're also going to discuss how the child support system works in the state of Texas. My guest today is Michelle Heron. Michelle has been a trial attorney for almost 30 years, helping her clients navigate all the family law issues, including child support. She also worked as an assistant attorney general for the state of Texas, and she served as an assistant director for a nonprofit, helping clients handle some of the most complicated and difficult family law cases. Now she is an attorney with Hargrave Family Law, and she's bringing all of her experience and knowledge to help serve our clients. And I wanted to sit down with her today and talk about some of the most common questions that people have when it comes to child support. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, so we're going to start with a very basic question, and that is, what is child support? In a nutshell, child support is the amount a person is ordered to pay to support the child, both for regular support and for medical support. And so when we talk about child support, um, there's a, there's a whole system in the state of Texas that kind of governs how child support gets set. It's not just a demand to pay what the expenses of the child. So walk us through a little bit how child support gets set in Texas. So a lot of people under the misconception that it's something that people just like pull up out of the sky or that they take the cost of diapers and formula and divide it in half. And that's not the way it works. There's actually a whole chart designed by those folks in Austin that <laughs> specifies exactly how much and what percentage of a person's net resources that they should pay for child support. And this is all prescribed actually originally from the federal government who thinks it's important for there to be a system in place for every state. So when we talk about like the amount of child support that's going to be ordered, we often use the term guideline child support. What, what is that referring to? The guideline child support is a very, very specific chart that Austin came up with that says, okay, this is how much you make, and this is how many children you have in this case, and this is the percentage that you should pay optimally to support your child. So, and we're going to include a link to that chart so people can download it and take a look and see uh, what the amount is they'd be ordered to pay. But it's, it's very formulaic, right? Very. Um, in fact, the standards are for one child, if you have no other children under the age of 18, that would be 20% of your net resources. And net resources is also a defined term. So um, you take the gross amount, which you're, what, you're, what your offer letter says, maybe if you're a W-2 employee, and, um, and then the amount is calculated off of that. And we take into consideration bonus payments that are made as part of the employment. And that can be fluctuating. And so a lot of times that throws people for a loop. How is it that bonus payments are calculated in, for child support purposes? Generally, they're looking at what people have received in the past to begin with, to get an idea of what the standard average is. But if there is a promise letter or if there is a letter saying it's going to be this much percentage, what have you, sometimes they'll use that. But they try and go with something that, that they know is coming versus necessarily kind of a pie in the sky, maybe. And so how far back are we looking to determine what that average is? 
generally they'll live between six and 12 months. Okay. And so, so you've got the gross amount that's being mm-hmm. paid. And then um, sometimes people think they're going to be, um, they're going to outsmart the system. And so they're going to increase their withholdings for taxes um, and make it like they have, you know, zero dependents, even though they, have, they do have dependents, or they'll increase their um, 401k withholdings, or they'll opt into all these other extra benefits available through the employer. Um, Are those kind of deductions considered when calculating net child support? Absolutely not. (laughs) There's a very, very defined amount that's allowed for taxes. And there's the amount that's allowed to cost to insure that particular child in the case. And that's all that's allowed to be deducted from your gross before they take that percentage for your child support. So they're not actually looking at all of the payroll withholdings, maybe the Christmas fund that you're signing up for, or the charity charity that you're donating to. It's just the, the federal tax withholdings as calculated per the state, some of the state withholdings for like the, the um, unemployment, and then health insurance. For the child. For the child. Just the portion that's attributable to the child. So like if you have a family plan, they'll take employee, employee plus kids, subtract the difference, and then divide it out for the number of children you have insured under that plan. And that amount is what will be allowed. The only difference on the taxation side is if you're self-employed versus a W-2. There are different standards used, but those are also very set forth already in the statutes. So what are the documents that we need from the obligor, uh, the person who's going to be paying the child support? What are the documents we need in order to determine the amount of child support? So it depends on whether they're a W-2 or not, whether they're going to claim to be 1099 or not. And just we're using that term. W-2 means you're like a traditional employee of an employer. But a 1099 is more of an independent contractor. Exactly. So your W-2 employee will have their taxes already removed from their check, their health insurance and all that, whereas a 1099 is just getting paid straight out and they're responsible for all those things on their own. And so um, for someone coming to you for that analysis, I would say you'd ask them for their last tax return because that'll give you an idea where they were, you know, many in the last 12 months. Um, their most recent pay stubs. And then if there's been any changes that they can expect coming up, either as to the cost of health insurance or as to their salaries. And for the cost of health insurance, it's usually a form from the employer that kind of discusses the the cost of health insurance for the employee. So like you were saying, it's a chart, employee, employee plus spouse, employee plus spouse plus children, employee plus children. And we take that chart and then we're able to figure out the cost of of health insurance for that child. Now that's assuming you're getting insurance through the employer. There's other sources of insurance. So you can get insurance through your employer, you can get insurance through your spouse's employer, or you can be getting insurance through the state's governmental assistance or the marketplace. And if you're getting assistance through CHIPS or Medicaid, that's gonna be a different calculation than if you're doing W-2 employment or even um, your spouse's employment. Okay, um, so we, we figure out, we kind of get to that net income and then we apply a percentage to that net income. And to walk, kind of walk us through how that percentage works. So again, it's a, it's a very specific chart. So everyone who thinks this is just dreamed up by their, their ex, you know, to make their lives miserable, that's not the way it works. <laughs> it's a very specific chart and it says, okay, this is how many children you have in this case. This is how many children you have someplace else under the age of 18. And based on how many are here and how many are elsewhere, that's gonna be the percentage that you're expected to pay of your net for the child support part. The medical is separate, 
uninsured medical expenses are also separate. So, it, so if we have um, one child and no other children, but just one child during the relationship, what's the percentage? 20%. If it's two children? 25. And if it's three children? 30. And if it's four children? It keeps going. It, <laughs> the chart keeps going and going and going out. and going. It does max out, I think. I think uh, No, there's, there's a percentage or there's an actual number that you add on per child. I think maybe goes up to 12. Okay, well, I we're going to have say. to pull out the chart and look. But I, 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 think it, I think you can't. It's no more than 50%. Um, oh, no, they can't take more than 50% of your check. Right. But in terms of, you know, the, the percentages on the chart and how many children they account for on the chart, I, I want to say. You know, okay, we're going to have a high. wager. We're going to have okay, to go back we'll and figure it out. it out who wins. But um, And then if you have, say, if you have one child from another relationship, so you have a total of two children. You've got one child in the relationship and one child from another relationship. What is the child support? So it's 17.5 in each case, which the moral of the story is, is less expensive to have two children with one woman than it is to have two children with two different women. That's, <laughs> that, that's a good moral of the story. I hope you all are listening to that. Uh, okay. And so now there is a cap on the net income. Yes. And today, what is that cap? 9,200. And that, now that cap will change. Every time the legislature meets and they feel the need to mess with it. Yes. So we just, we, we're just coming off of a legislative session um, in the odd year of 23. And they actually didn't mess with it this year. A rarity. I mean, the Austin prides themselves on doing something for the family every time they meet. So you should expect some change someplace. Okay. Um, and so probably in another two years, we'll see, we'll see exactly. that cap will we'll raise. How does that, that ceiling work? So they assume that to be the ceiling, but if you make more than the ceiling, then that's a separate consideration. So the percentages that I've talked about only apply up to that cap. Up and to then, $9,200, which equates to about a gross income of around $150,000. About that. Yeah. About that. Um, and so if you're making $250,000, uh, your that your child support, just according to that chart, is going to be capped as if you're making about $150,000. Right. Unless someone wants to try and what they call bust the cap, which is trying to argue that there's a reason to go beyond that. And once you get beyond that, a lot of subjective considerations come into play that really aren't in play before that. Okay, Michelle, but but my neighbor next door to me got child support of five thousand dollars a month. What do you mean that this cap? I'm capped at eighteen forty a month. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, that means a lot of different things. Hypothetically, that could mean that someone agreed to an amount above it. You can agree to whatever you want. The judge will sign an order that says. We agree to paint our faces yellow every Wednesday. The judge will sign that. But so you can put whatever you want as long as you agree. But if you don't agree, then it's a question of did you make it to the cap? And then once you got to the cap, what are the considerations for the child beyond the cap? Do we have private school? Do we have disability? Do we have some other activities that the parents agree that should be done and, and are important and they're going to continue to support? And so that's, those are reasons to go beyond the cap. And then there's analysis as to, you know, at that point, the, the person who's receiving the money, their income comes into play. And the courts are looking at, okay, now how much does that person make versus how much does this person make? 
what lifestyles the child used to, that kind of thing. Um, although, according to the actual law, and I think people need to know this, the, the, the court's actually not allowed to take into consideration lifestyle. Parties may take into consideration lifestyle when they're negotiating child support. But, you know, a lot of times um, we know we have to tell clients, like, guideline child support is the law. It's very hard to get above that. The law does allow provision to get above that. But most often, at least in my experience, I don't know what your experience we see that judges will pretty much stick to the guideline child support. They don't like to go beyond it. And they definitely have to have a good reason. And and when I say lifestyle, I'm more talking about like maybe activities the child is used to doing. Right. Because the other thing that judges hate doing is upending a child's life, drastically changing a child's life, especially in the middle of something like a divorce. So if there's a, an activity the child is used to doing and there's a good argument to be made to continue that, that may be a reason to try and do that. And some of those activities can get really expensive. Like if you're playing select sports or horseback riding, I know is um, one that comes up. Um, I have a daughter who swims competitively and I know exactly where my money goes. <laughs> it's in the pool. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, so, so, so those are some of the factors. Also, if you have a child with special needs. Correct. And those can be very, very daunting in terms of those expenses and whether or not they're insured and how much of that is even considered in that equation. There may be other things that are necessary that aren't even considered medical expenses, but are related to a disability. Exactly. Um, so we've talked about sort of the monthly child support amount, but you mentioned that there are some other considerations. Um, so the, the person who's paying sort of under our system, the person who's paying child support, the obligor, also generally will be also obligated to cover health insurance for the child. Correct. Whether they're insuring them through their employer, through a spouse's employer, or reimbursing their ex for health insurance. Correct. Um, and then there's unreimbursed medical expenses. So let's talk a little bit about how unreimbursed medical expenses work. So really what they're called is unreimbursed healthcare expenses. And in this day and age, any parent who has a child who might need braces knows why that's a big difference. But that includes anything from medical to orthodontal to psychological, psychiatric counseling, classes, (laughs) all of that is all considered healthcare expenses. And they're all considered reasonable and necessary unless someone, you know, proves up otherwise. I mean, I'm not going to say that a judge is going to say that, you know, plastic surgery on a 12-year-old is reasonable and necessary, depending on the circumstance. But most of the time, it's presumed that they are. And to the extent that they're not covered by the insurance, as long as the insurance that was ordered is in place, then those parents are obligated to split those expenses 50-50. And usually we start at 50-50. Sometimes, depending on a disparity in income, it it could be a little bit Different than that, that may be one of the things that gets negotiated. Again, that's something easier to be done by agreement than otherwise, because that's one of those things where judges will fall back on what is normal, what is guideline versus, you know, otherwise. So if you can agree on things, the sky is the limit. Exactly. Um, And when it comes to asking for the reimbursement of medical expenses, people need to know and understand you need to work with the insurance. So if you're going to a provider that's out of network, Um, Make sure you get the other parent's agreement before you sign up for those services. That and I always tell people the difference between an order in Texas with kids and without kids is about 25, 30 pages. And a big part of that reason is the insurance and how that insurance provisions are, are done and how you submit uninsured expenses to each other, how you expect that to be reimbursed, how you work with the insurance companies. There's a lot of devil in the details. And it's very important to read those and follow those procedures in order to get your money back. 
Exactly. And in fact, I would really encourage people, whoever your attorney is, um, when you're reviewing the decree and going over, you know, the requirements under the decree, make sure you have a really clear understanding of how those medical insurance provisions work, because a lot of people can get stuck with big expenses, not not knowing how that system works. And the judges want to help you, but you have to follow the rules that are in the order for them to be able to enforce what's available in the order. And that's even the attorney general's office. If you go to them for assistance with enforcement, you have to follow the rules. Otherwise, they're helpless in terms of actually moving the judge to do something. Um, now, one thing we, you know, we represent parties. Um, we represent fathers. We represent mothers. We represent people who have primary uh, custody of their child. We represent the non-primary uh, uh, parent. Um, and so we're, we're all over the board. We often hear comments from parents. So of course, um, the obligor, the person who's making the child support payment, what are some of the common complaints you hear from that person? Oh, goodness. Why is she putting me on child support? I support my kid. I just bought a box of diapers yesterday. That's <laughs> that's a common one. Another one is why do I have to pay the money through the state? That I'm not a criminal. I'll give her the money. What's ordered, I'll do it. Why do I have to pay through the state? And uh, the answer to both of those questions is, there's very specific laws that govern how much you're supposed to pay, and it's not per the cost of diapers, and that you have to pay through the state. And, and I tell this to everyone. I tell this to my own husband who was ordered to pay child support. There is something to be said for using your tax dollars and using the system available to you, which is going to pay through the state. It's required, and they will take it from your check so you won't even miss it before it's gone, and you won't have to remember to put a payment in the mail in an envelope with a stamp every month for 18 years, yeah. which my husband would never remember to do. Well, and we'll talk, it used to be back in the day that wages got garnished if somebody had done something wrong. You had to wait until there was a mispayment or there was, you know, a child support enforcement action before the wages would be garnished. But that all changed. I, I don't know. As long as I've been doing family law, it's been the system that wage withholding orders are the norm and are actually required to be entered at the time. Definitely. I mean, I started doing family law around 2005, and that was about the time that everything was mandated to be paid through the office of the attorney general um, at that point. And it was regardless of the situation, yeah. everything had to go through that disbursement unit to be paid. Yeah. And so from time to time, we'll see kind of the legacy cases, not so much anymore, but there were situations where there were orders for child support to be paid outside of the attorney general. There are still occasions when people will agree to it, but we're going to talk about the problems with that here shortly um, as one of the one of the things we're going to touch on. But uh, when it comes to paying child support, I know another one that I, I always hear, complaints I always hear is, why, why am I having to support her lifestyle? I um, mean, it is usually her. Those are just genders. But sometimes it's the reverse. And if it's a woman paying the man, she's saying the same thing. Why am I paying for his lifestyle? And, and this is the system that we have. And really, the, usually the money, when we're representing the party who's receiving the child support, usually the comment is, this isn't enough. How am I supposed to, supposed to support my children on this, right? It's never enough. So, And it's all proportional. A lot of people don't realize they hear the percentage and, and they get all excited. They're like, oh my gosh. But then when you look at a minimum wage situation, you know, you're talking $250 a month, which anybody who's had a kid in daycare knows that's nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
you know, so it, it just all depends on what you're dealing with in terms of the numbers. In terms of strategies, if you're preparing to go in to a negotiation for child support, um, what information do you encourage that people have ready um, to in order to sit down and have that conversation? So there's a couple of different venues that they go into for negotiation. Um, sometimes they're negotiating through the office of the attorney general, and they'll do those informally through their offices. And I would make sure that to the extent you know whether you're the one asking for child support or the one being asked to pay child support, that you have all your financials available, um, that you know about other children under the age of 18, that you definitely have the information about the cost of the health insurance. That is always the glitch. You yeah. know, everyone has an idea what they make, but when you ask them, how much do you pay for this kid to be insured? That is a, is a number that no one ever has. And they have got to call HR on the phone and yeah. get that information. Yeah. And then with regard to the children, like if somebody's going to be asking, say, for above guideline child support, um, I think it's really helpful to make sure that you have good records that support the expenses for your children. So sit down and go through past credit card bills, go through bank statements and look at how much you're paying for extracurricular activities, for after school care, for other child care, for babysitting, et cetera, and, um, and have a good summary of those expenses just because it helps highlight, you know, if you're the one who's been paying the expenses for the child, the other parent probably is pretty clueless about what it really costs sure. for this child. That's not unusual. Um, and so it's really helpful to have that supporting information. And your tax returns are actually a good place for those after care, those after school care and those other care expenses because you're usually submitting them for deduction and they've given you those forms to turn in. Exactly. So having your own tax returns helps when you start the process as well. Yes. Um, now, how does child support get set? Is it that a baby's born and somebody at the hospital walks in and says, uh, time to pay child support? There are a lot of misconceptions <laughs> about how child support cases start. Um, first of all, no, it is not the minute they're born. In fact, the minute they're born, there's not even a determination of who father is. Um, that's not made automatically either. So usually if there's a case started through the office of the attorney general, it started one of two ways. Either someone has applied for services or the Department of Health and Human Services has said, please go get the reimbursement for the medical insurance that the state is paying for. And those are usually the two ways those cases start there. Now that's through the office of the attorney general. The other way is someone brings a private action, whether you're doing a divorce or whether you're doing just an initial case regarding a child and asking for support, and then you're looking to ask a court to make that order. But until there's a court order saying someone has to pay, no one has to pay a dime. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense if a child's born while the parents are living together, it's sort of the assumption is that both parents are contributing for the expenses for the child. So it takes a, a, a court action um, or at least getting services started through the attorney general in order to get child support started. Now, let's say you wait a couple of years, the child's like three years old um, and you don't have any child support orders in place. Is it too late to ask for child support back to the date? No. Okay. No, usually they, at least the office of the attorney general will go back about in four years. Okay. So that's good to know about four years. So what is, why would someone consider just going through the attorney general versus hiring a lawyer to start a private, you know, lawsuit through the court? I would say the first factor is the cost. Um, starting a case regarding a child right now, 
the filing fees are about 370 or higher. And that's just, I'm quoting Dallas County. Um, and then you have to serve the other person, get those papers to them in a way that's official. That's usually anywhere between 80 and a hundred dollars, depending on what the cost involved is. And, you know, so it's, it's the attorney general with your tax dollars funds that cost. If there's going to be any fuss about um, paternity, if there's going to be any discussion about, you know, is this his child? Those DNA tests run three to $500, depending on which service you go through. Whereas if you go through the offices of the attorney general and ask for that to be established, they pay for it all. So that's the big reason I would say. And then also just, you know, how fast you want it done and maybe the ease of the process. If, if there's a lot of agreement, you know, it's pretty easy to do. And even if you're you're married to the, um, the parent of your child, there are occasions when people will get um, a, a, a child support order in place. Maybe if you're living apart, you're no longer living together, but you just haven't gone through the divorce process yet. You can go ahead and file and ask for child support. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground in terms of what is child support. Um, and so fast forward, a child support order is in effect. The parties are paying child support. Um, and, you know, it's a couple of years later. Um, is that the set amount of child support that will be paid until the child turns 18? Or can that amount change? It can change anytime for <laughs> a lot of different reasons. Um, one can just simply be that the parent who's paying has another child. At that point, they're entitled to a modification to change the percentage that they're paying on the original order. It can be that health insurance has changed and the cost of that has drastically moved. There's some standards as to how much has to change before the court deems it worth signing a new order. Mm -hmm. But basically, if there's any change in the status of things, you can move to change it as long as it's not something as simple as the kid is older now, he costs more money. One of the unique things about a child support obligation is that it is enforceable. So today I want to talk about how does one go about enforcing child support and what does that mean? Why do people need to be really careful when it comes to child support obligations? So the first thing I would think people should know is that child support enforcement rides sort of a mystery land in between civil and criminal law. They call it quasi-criminal. It's not something that's going to go on a criminal record, but you can end up in a cell. You can end up in a jail cell. <laughs> yes. And so in that respect, it's something to be taken very seriously. Um, whenever anybody asks me about this, my, my usual starting point is to say very, very bad things can happen if you don't pay your child support. And of course, um, the jail cell is just one of the things yes. that happens. And, and to be realistic, if you're looking to enforce a child support obligation, um, judges usually don't start with a jail cell when it comes to enforcement. So in your experience, what's sort of the path that people go down before they end up in jail? So there's really two different paths. There's the path in the actual child support court, which are just before judges who do nothing but child support. And then there's also a path where you're in front of district judges who do all the other types of family law cases as well, or even all the other types of cases in general. And so the child support judges are very, very keen on, did you pay? Why didn't you pay? But they will give you a chance to start proving you can pay because everyone agrees it's better for them to pay the money and for the child to receive the money than it is to put somebody in jail and just not have any money. Right. So they will give you a chance first. And so generally speaking, 
my experience has been that when, when a suit is filed, the first thing they do is you come in and they read you your rights. And you do have the right to an attorney because jail is on the line, generally speaking. And so, you know, they'll ask you whether you can afford one or not or whether one should be appointed. And at that time, the judges usually take an opportunity to say, okay, you know you owe this much and you haven't been paying for a bit. Let's give you a few months to see if you can bring some money in and show a good faith attempt to make a payment. And then, you know, we can talk about what we're going to do after that. And at that enforcement hearing, is that a time, say, if you've lost a job or you've come upon some hardship, can you ask the court to, to reduce the child support or modify the amount at that enforcement? Everything has to be done on paper. The judges can't do anything just because you ask it to them in front of them orally. So, but you, that's a good time to file. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be a better time to file before you reach that point, because then it looks like you're not trying to use that as an excuse. Okay. And so, and by the way, if you're not, if you've fallen behind on child support, that obligation that was set in the original order you're incurring penalties and interest on that. Absolutely. Right? There's interest that incurs monthly, and those are all enforceable monthly. Yeah. And so it kind of adds, it can create Balloons. the snowball effect. Um, and so if you're going to file uh, with a private attorney, what does that look like through the court system? So again, you would be making an assessment as to whether you want to pay those upfront costs or not. So going through a private lawyer, you would have to file the enforcement action yourself, pay for the court costs and pay for the other side to be served. But the procedure, once they get to court, is still the same. The first hearing when they come in after they've been served is whether or not they can represent themselves or whether or not they need a lawyer, or whether they intend to hire a lawyer, that kind of and I, I usually point out to people in a private enforcement proceeding is is expensive because the pleading itself has to be precise. Like you can't have mistakes in that pleading. Absolutely. And because jail is on the line, the courts are very, very particular about dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Um, and, you know, this isn't really a plug for business. But the nice part about the attorney general's pleadings is that people have challenged those pleadings all the way up to the Supreme Court. And they've been found to be valid. So, you know, at least there's no technical issues for the most part, because it is a very technical procedure. It's a te Yes, that's right. And you want to make sure you're working with somebody who has expertise in that area. Oh, absolutely. Now, the advantage of going through private, though, is that the attorney general is more focused on what they have records of. In a private proceeding, you have a little more leeway to deal with maybe uninsured medical expenses or other things like that that aren't recorded in the attorney general system. Okay. Um, and it would it probably, if you're the one, the obligee, the one receiving child support, you haven't received child support in a while, it's, it's usually, I think, a smart decision to at least do a consult and sit down with a lawyer who can help you assess, look, if it, if it makes more sense to go through the attorney general, we know let's help you get everything organized and ready to go that route. Um, or if it makes more sense to do a private enforcement action, then, you know, we can certainly help do that. And most people don't realize you can do both. Excellent. So one of the things that is important to understand about the Office of the Attorney General is they don't represent anybody other than the state. So they're proceeding on the state's interests. So really, you it's important for you to have your own lawyer throughout the process, even if you're using their office. So having that lawyer along who's looking out for you and your interests and what you want versus what the state wants and their numbers is an important thing to have. Uh, very good point. Um, now, 
let's talk a little bit about, um, in addition to contempt and jail time, the attorney general actually is empowered and has more, uh, more enforcement power beyond just jail. So let's talk about what that looks like so people can be aware um, that there are other ways to enforce child support besides jail. So the attorney general has vast administrative powers that really aren't even able to be ruled on or controlled by a judge. And they include um, IRS tax returns coming back, refunds that are due. They can actually Shanghai those for your child support obligations. They can put liens on bank accounts. They can put liens on property. They can put liens on lottery winnings, lawsuit winnings, personal injury. If they find out that you've got, you know, assets hidden someplace, they can go after those. And then if you have any license issued by the state of Texas, everything from a fishing license to a law license is fair game. And they will tell you they're not going to renew it or they're suspending it or you have major problems and you're not going to see it anytime soon. And I know uh, we've also gotten calls at times when people go to renew their passport and and they're not able to renew their passport and go on the business trip or travel to see a dying loved one because there's problems with child there's support. There's passport issues. There's credit record issues. There's, there's all kinds of implications. And the other thing people don't realize is that child support is not chargeable in bankruptcy. It sits there and it will sit there. And when you retire and you go to claim your social security, Guess what's coming out of your Social Security check? Your child support that you didn't pay for that kid who's now 50 some odd years old. <laughs> so is there something that the obligee needs to do in order to make sure that that child support claim stays alive so that, you know, 40 years later, the Social Security check is taken? So what you need to do is that at the time the, the child ages out or emancipates, which means turns 18 or graduates high school, whichever is later, unless you have a disability involved, you want to get a judgment confirming what was owed. And they'll confirm both the, the past due payments and the past due interest. And then you need to keep that judgment alive going forward like a regular judgment. And again, I would say it's something that you want to stay on the radar with the attorney general's office, be that squeaky wheel that keeps after them to go after everything they can find because they have vast resources to go look. Um, and finally, the last thing I want to touch on is when people are setting up a child support account, when that order's been entered, the child support's ordered, um, there are options for either registry services or full services. Can you talk a little bit about when people should register for full services and what what registry-only services means. So the Office of the Attorney General is actually the largest law firm in the state. And there's a misconception that all they do is sit around watching payment records. And if somebody screws up a payment, there's going to be a lawsuit filed. And that is not the way it works. So most cases, when they start out, start out as what's called registry-only cases. The law requires that all the payments are made through the disbursement unit in San Antonio. And all they do is keep a record of the payment being made. They don't even keep a record of the balance sheet right now. They're just showing that a payment has been made. When you actually need the Office of the Attorney General to do something affirmatively, like modify an order or enforce an order, or you've heard that you know he's about to come into a bunch of money and you want something collected, then you need to apply for the full services to open a full case with the Office of the Attorney General which will then kind of turn the lights on with them as to taking affirmative action rather than just being sort of a blind depository. So if you're in a registry only action, which is what most people sign up for when you're getting your case um, set up, 
Um, and then there's an arrearage and he's getting behind or she's getting behind and you want to go after their fishing license or the passport or whatever those you consequences laugh. Those are. fishing licenses no, can be very, very important. They're, they're important in my household too. Um, so what, what, like the registry only, the OAG isn't going to be taking any action on their own initiative. So Correct. at that time, that's when you would want to opt for full services is when they're, they've gotten behind and you need some extra muscle to help get those payments collected. The only exception I would say is if you have a case where a child's on Medicaid or on CHIPS, those cases are monitored a bit more closely because the money that's being collected for those services is actually being paid to the state. So you might end up with an enforcement that kind of appears on its own without you asking for it. But other than that, yeah, you need to, you need to firmly go and say, please, I want you to open a full case and, and do something. So um, I have one more point that we have to make. Sure. And that is we talked about how people kind of get disgruntled that they have to pay through the state that or that they're paying with a, an income withholding order. Why can't they just pay directly? And so I want you to talk about how paying through the state disbursement unit can actually benefit both the obligee and the obligor. So if you don't and then you come to court, it is literally a he said, she said as to the payments. And we've seen people try and go around the system and do it otherwise. The first thing is, legally speaking, it's considered a gift. If you don't pay it the way the order says it should be paid to the disbursement unit, they can say, hey, you were just being nice. That was a gift. <laughs> then there's also the issue of, you know, will the other party even acknowledge the payment was made? And every month, 12 months a year, 18 years, that's a long time to try and make sure that you have records. So that's why... You know, it's your tax dollars funding and all. You might as well use it. It's to your benefit and it will be your best friend when something comes up in terms of proving payments have or have not been made. <laughs> right. Either that, either defending you against the claim that payments weren't made and then you've got the record that shows that they were. Or um, if you need to invoke the assistance of the attorney general in collecting, then you've got the payment record that shows that they weren't made. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we're seeing a lot these days are job changes with yes. layoffs. And so certainly if you're under a child support order and you've just lost your job, that's a time to consult with an attorney, maybe schedule an appointment with the attorney general and uh, see if you're entitled to have a, have a reduction. Because what the court won't do is retroactively reduce the amount of child support. That, yeah, and that's another misconception. The court has a lot of magical powers. But the court does not have the power to go back in the past and change the amount that was ordered to be paid. So that amount is only changed the minute the judge signs a new order. So the sooner that's done, the better. Yeah. Now, of course, there are always exceptions and we're not giving legal advice on here. So, you know, whatever the, whatever the circumstances are that you're facing, you really need to get legal advice. But th there are circumstances where, you know, if if the, the primary... Uh, conservatorship of the child changes, for example. So maybe the parent who had the primary conservatorship moves and leaves the child with the other parent. That can be a circumstance that would um, give rise to a uh, an exception, right? Yes. Um, and so you'd have a defense as to why you're not paying child support if your child's now living with you most of the time. Well, and hopefully you're filing for a modification <laughs> because what you need is you need to get those orders officially terminated. Right. Otherwise, the court has the, the job of going backwards and trying to say, OK, let's prove that you actually had the child when you weren't supposed to have the child and give you some credit for that time. And that's a lot more fuzzy land, you know, in terms of proving that up than it is just to say, OK, this is the date 
So if you're the obligor for child support and the child is now spending most of the time with you, that's the time to make sure you you, uh, uh, file to modify your child support. Correct. Yeah. Um, Okay. What else do we need to know about modification? So you can modify through the courts with a private attorney, but you can also apply for services to modify through the attorney general. What does that look like in a modification? So it, it's very similar to the original process, which you've got two different directions it can go. Um, it can be as simple as the both of the parents agree. You make an appointment. You go into the office of the office of the attorney general. They draft up an agreed order. You sign it. You never see the inside of a courtroom. They take it to the courthouse and it's signed by a judge and you're done. It Excellent. can be that simple. Um, it can also be that, you know, there's not an agreement. And even if there's not an agreement, you can still apply for their services and they will follow a suit for you to modify whether it's loss of a job or a child has moved in with you, you know, who wasn't living there before or, you know, change in health insurance or other kind of circumstances. Excellent. And then, of course, in a private action, I always say this is one of those things you need to give special consideration to because once you file to say increased child support, you're probably going to get a counter petition Absolutely. asking to change other things. So Absolutely. You, you need to be really careful if you're considering that. We want to cover enforcement. We're going to have to do that in another episode. Will you come back and we of can course. finish our conversation? Of course. I want to thank you so much, Michelle, for taking time and helping us better understand how the child support system works. And I know everybody's going to want to stay tuned for the enforcement. If you want to learn more about Michelle Heron and about her practice um, and possibly consulting with her to consider whether or not you're eligible for child support or need to modify uh, the current obligations, please click on the link below and um, check us out at HargraveFamilyLaw.com. Thank you so much.